invite you to stand for the reading of Scripture today. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, it's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you can be seated. It's good to see all of you here today. If we haven't met before, I'm Pastor Joy. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And actually, if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. Would you come up and introduce yourself after the service? That'd be great. I know there's a lot of new faces. So today's text is on weddings. I'm guessing most of us have been to or in weddings. And as I reflected on weddings this week, I thought that, you know, I think something goes wrong at most weddings. I was at one many years ago where the bride's daughter spilled Kool-Aid on her mother's bride's dress, just, it was red, just a few minutes before the ceremony began. So that delayed the wedding by 30 minutes, and they got the stain out. At, at another of, one of my friend's closest, one of my closest friend's weddings, um, there was a candelabra with candles that was decorated with synthetic greenery. But it had been moved to be placed close to an air conditioning vent, and so the air caused the candle to burn down very rapidly, and toward the beginning of the wedding, while the officiant was standing, and then my friend and her soon-to-be husband were standing, they, she could see over the officiant's shoulder. She saw the candle burn all the way down, and then, like an explosion of synthetic greenery. And she said to the pastor, um, there's fire. And someone knew where a fire extinguisher was and ran up on the chancel and, and put that fire out. And I was talking with her uh, about this this week, and she said, yeah, that, that really helped quell the wedding jitters. Um, they are still happily married. Uh, so as I was thinking of this, I asked my own husband, Justin, and we've been married for 21 years, and I said, well, what, what happened wrong at our wedding? And he said, yeah, remember we hired that photographer who used the money on drugs, and we didn't get our pictures until two years later? So that's a, a story for another day, but... <laughs> Something goes wrong at most weddings, whether you see it or not. So the wedding today is a rural wedding. 
Jesus and his mom and some of his disciples are there. You know, it's a wedding like we understand. Husband, wife, family, friends, food, wine. But it's also different because this wedding, like most first century weddings, is seven days long and everyone is invited. There is no A-list, B-list, C-list. Nope, everyone is A-list. And if you can pull off a wedding like this as a host, in this culture, you receive so much honor. It's, it's a great opportunity to sort of climb the social ladder. But this time, at this wedding, the catering calculator is off. There's not enough wine. This is possible humiliation to the host family. I mean, who has a wedding and runs out of food or wine? In Jewish thought, wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. There's a saying, there is no rejoicing save with wine. Wine is necessary to weddings. And Mary knows the wine is out. We don't know how. She knows maybe she's friends with the family or the host. So she approaches Jesus, puts her hand on his shoulder, tilts her empty cup and says, they have no more wine. No more wine equals long-term shame. This household is going to be the laughing stock of the small town of Cana for time to come. I don't know, seven years? People will laugh about it, but in a cruel way. Remember when Abram's daughter was married and they ran out of wine? We had to drink water. And everyone will laugh. And Avram will be the laughing stock of the community and lose some of his business and a lot of his reputation. It'll be bad for everyone in the household. They have no more wine. I imagine Jesus shaking his head. I mean, this is one of those observations that moms make that's really an imperative. Like, there are dirty socks on the floor or there's carrot sticks in the fridge. They have no more wine. Woman, Jesus said. And I know this can kind of sound rude, but really it's like dear lady in Shakespeare. Dear lady, this isn't my business. My time is not yet. But Mary holds out hope. She knows what Jesus, who has been filled with the spirit at his baptism, is capable of. And Mary takes authority. She's the mom, after all, so she speaks to the servants Whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, do it. I wonder what Jesus is thinking at this moment. I wonder what scripture texts are in his head. Did he ponder Isaiah 25, 6, which reads, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. Or maybe Amos 9, 13, the time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps, and the treader of grapes the one who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Wine, in the biblical imagination, is a sign of the coming of the day of the Lord. This is a day when the Lord will reign, the day that the glory of the Lord will be revealed and God is crowned as king. This is what wine represents. 
So Jesus gives the servants simple instructions. Fill the jars, and they obey. And these are large stone jars that all together could hold 120 to 180 gallons of water. I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't touch the jars. He doesn't touch the water. He invites help. He doesn't even proclaim his own authority. He doesn't say, hey, servants, listen to me and do what I say. Mary has already given him authority. Jesus just says, fill the jars with water. And then he says, take some out and give it to the master of ceremonies, the sommelier. And they do. But the sommelier is confused. This order is upside down. And so he says to the bridegroom, Everyone else puts the best wine out first when people appreciate it. But they wait until everyone's drunk for the two-buck chuck, but you have kept the good wine until now. And the wedding's back on. And no one is aware of the big mistake. No one saw. No one can tell the story in a sermon about crises and weddings because there wasn't one. No one knows that there was an impending, embarrassing incident at that wedding in Cana. There's no, remember when Avram ran out of wine? The guests just party on, drinking this fine wine, unaware that the party almost ended, unaware that their wine was made by Jesus, the firstborn of creation, through whom all things were created, all things, including wine. But no one knows. And because no one knows, this sign is, is undersold, underrepresented, even by some biblical scholars today. Pastor Lars earlier mentioned the book out in the garden court, the commentary, I mean, it's really readable commentary on, on John by Michael Card, and I'm recommending this book. But right away, I disagree with him because he calls this Jesus' least miraculous miracle. Really? Or does nobody understand it? I mean, this is how much wine it was based on what scripture says. So um, 120 to 180 gallons of wine would be 600 to 900 bottles of wine today. For cheap wine, that would be $9,000. But for nice wine, and I contacted a sommelier who said that nice wine is 60 to $75 a bottle retail, more at restaurants. And so this wine would be valued at $36,000 to $67,000. Least miraculous, really. Maybe just no one saw what Jesus was doing. They missed the sign. They were too drunk to notice. And Jesus is standing right there, right in front of them. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with morrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. Now, before we go on, I do want to make a brief comment about wine. Maybe you're wondering what we teach about it and what we believe about uh, alcohol or wine here at Hinsdale Covenant Church. Well, I'll tell you what the Bible says. The Bible talks quite a bit about wine, and it says two main things about it. The first is that wine is a gift of God. Great text on this is Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart. 
It's the first thing. Wine is a gift from God. Secondly, Scripture teaches that wine can be abused and used in a disordered and chaotic way through drunkenness and dependence primarily. And this is wrong. Drunkenness is forbidden numerous times in Scripture. Here's one clear example in Ephesians. Do not get drunk with wine. See how clear it is? For that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. So it's an inviting of even more in our life in Christ. Wine, like sex, is a gift of God, but one to be enjoyed within boundaries. So there's boundaries for this gift. Our particular text in John does not teach about the ethics of wine, but we do see that wine here is literally a gift of Jesus. But it's a gift that most wedding partiers missed. They missed it. They missed the gift. They missed that God was actively involved in their daily life. They missed the sign. You know, I think that sometimes we can be like those wedding guests at Cana. We can live our lives oblivious to God's work in and among us. We can take each day for granted on this treadmill of life. Get up, coffee, breakfast, go to the gym, work, school, the doctor, eat lunch, Scroll through your phone, keep your head down, thinking about your own problems, multitask, get ready for the next big thing, fill the jars with water, fill the fridge with food, mind, fill your mind with information, fill your heart with entertainment, seeking distraction, because the pain or loneliness or disorder on that treadmill of life is just too much. And we live in a world, my friends, where distraction is so easy. As of a year ago, Netflix had 40,000 hours worth of content. That is over four and a half years. You could start watching Netflix right now and then watch it uninterrupted until August 2026. That doesn't include sleep and bathroom breaks. And by that time, I'm sure there'd be more content. You could add another year on, right? And that's just one streaming service. Distraction, right there, ready to receive us. But distraction has consequences. Physically, distracted driving, car accidents, right? Ignoring our children. Psychologically, shorter attention spans. A growing inability to read and think deeply and a rise in anxiety. Spiritually, all those things I just said, plus a loss in interest or an ability to relate to our unseen yet present God. I mean, it seems like we in our culture are even more distracted than the guests at Cana. All they had was a bunch of wine. We have that plus everything else. In January 2007, a violinist began to play in the Washington, D.C. metro station. He played for 45 minutes with his violin case open to get a little money. While he played, 1,097 people passed by, and only seven stopped to listen. But you know how it is in the morning. I mean, you have a 9 o'clock, and you have the emails, and the sales, and the responsibilities, and the kids to get to school, the activities. You have the doctor's appointments, and the phone call, and the grocery list. But at one point, a woman enters the station from the outside and stops watching the violinist, and people stream on by her. 
she stays until the end of this impromptu concert, and it ends, and she says, I saw you at the Library of Congress. It was fantastic. And the violinist says, thanks. This violinist was Joshua Bell. He had been playing a $4 million Stradivarius violin. If you're not a classical music fan, Joshua Bell is an American violinist and conductor who debuted at Carnegie Hall in 1985. He's not a busker, but only one out of 1,097 people noticed him. Only one saw the sign. Only one saw the glory of his talent, his technique honed from years of practicing. Only one saw the way he held the bow, his intricate fingering. Only one recognized his perfect tuning. Only one. Now, I, I don't think that there were over a thousand people at the wedding of Cana. And more than one person did recognize Jesus, right? His mother, his disciples. They knew what had happened with the wine, and so did the servants. And then our passage ends. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. They saw the sign, and they believed. They recognized his work as the work of God, and they believed in him. In Greek, the phrase believed in is epistousin ace. Usually it's translated believed in. But I think the best way to understand this is believed into. Ace, the preposition there, is also used when people go into a new place, like into Jerusalem, into the city, into Egypt. And there is movement implied here, not just a location. When we believe into Jesus, we have an absolute transference and an ongoing transference of trust into. This is not just cognitive ascent, like how we might believe and know that two plus two is four, or that gravity is the force that pulls things toward the earth. This is personal. And this phrase, believed into Jesus, occurs over and over in John's gospel, I counted, and I counted up 29 times, and that 29 does not include the times that people didn't believe into, because that's there too. Believed into. That's what Jesus' disciples did when they recognized his power. They believed into him. And it was because Jesus had revealed his glory to them in this outpouring of wine that represented the work of God, the kingdom of God, the glory of God. As John states in the introduction of the book, which we read for our call to worship, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. But maybe we wonder, what is glory? I mean, we use that word, right? A day or a season is glorious, or the view from Mount Eleanor in Washington state is glorious. A definition I appreciate is that God's glory is a revelation of the power, purposes, and presence of God. And that's what this wine is. God's creating power in Christ. God's purposes, flourishing, joy, humans in right relationship with God and with each other. Celebrating. And God's presence. The king, Jesus, is right here, and so the wine is flowing. And Jesus' disciples saw and believed in too. And that's the whole purpose of the signs. 
Our key verse for the series, John 20, 30 through 31, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Through these signs, we, are, we too are to come to believe in Jesus. And that's my hope for you this Lenten season. To begin to lift up your head and be aware of God's work around you. Like we sang in the song Waymaker, right? Be aware of God's constant activity around you because God does not slumber or sleep. Our creator God is constantly working to sustain life and to create. God did not, as the deist believed, just create the world and then head out to someplace far away. God's creative and sustaining work is ongoing. Lift up your eyes and see it. It's a little bit like this. I've been wearing glasses since sixth grade. This year, I was promoted to bifocals, so next step. But I remember the first day I got my pink plastic glasses, sitting on the back stairs of my home, looking out through the window in the door, and I could see the branches in the trees. I could see the articulation of each branch against the March sky. Now, this is March in northwest Indiana, and nobody really thinks of that as a place of great beauty. But I saw God's work that day with the right glasses on. I could see the black of the branches against the white of the sky. I could see the glory of God in the world God had made, and I was so thankful to be able to witness this. And for all of us here, God is at work in our lives. God is present. But our recognition of this requires awareness and openness, eyes up, head up, chin up, a spirit of wonder, awareness, and mystery. Often in our culture, I think we're taught to focus on if other people notice us, if they notice our success or our ideas or how we look or appear. Social media trains us for this, my friends. But what if, for this season, we put our attention on God's presence in our life? Stop wondering if people notice you. Start noticing God. Author Karen Maines, in her book called God Hunting, talks about this. And she provides some categories to begin looking for God and seeing God at work in life. I found this helpful for us as we begin to focus on believing into Jesus. So here are some ways to be attentive to God's work in our life. The first is is to look for answers to prayer. I encourage you to present both small and large requests to God. I know that all of us here might not pray very much. Some might even avoid prayer because you might think, well, God is God and why would my request matter? I know you're out there. So think about how Mary said to Jesus, There is no more wine. Tell God things. Tell Jesus problems. One prayer I take to God almost every day is, God, keep me safe while I do my errands and drive to work and drive my kids to school. Now, I'm not driving far. I drive in Willowbrook, Hinsdale, Downers Grove, and Darien. That's really about it for the most part. But I pray for God's protection for me and for others on the road. And God answers. And so to see God at work, start praying for God to work 
even in small things, small ways. Look for answers to prayer. Second, notice God's care for you. God is always caring for us. Be aware of it. Here's, here's a small example. One day this past fall, I was feeling down. I don't remember why. I was tired and I was troubled. Justin came home from work and he, he gave me this new book. His, the company he works for had published. It was a new translation of the New Testament. And I started thumbing through it and reading some of the passages that was familiar to me. And I, I was moved to tears suddenly by God's care and provision for me. It was like I had come to God and I hadn't even verbalized it in prayer, and God reminded me of his character and story and love. So notice God's care for you. Finally, watch for human participation in God's work. Many of Jesus' signs in John's gospel involve human participation, just like we saw today. The servants filled the jars. The servants took the sample to the sommelier, right? Humans participate in God's work. And sometimes it's even humans who don't yet have a relationship with God. All people are created in God's image, and God works his purposes potentially through us. So be ready to both participate and be ready to notice and see God's work in other people. And then I encourage you to affirm them in that. Say, I, I felt God's care through you. Name it. This can be a witness, and it can be an encouragement. So these are just some examples, some ways to keep your head up, your ears perked in the subway, to listen to the beautiful music that only a virtuoso violinist would ever make. Do not allow distraction to keep you from witnessing God's work in the world. Now, I began this sermon by saying that something goes wrong at each wedding. But I want to close with a final word about weddings. In drama, we have classic tragedy and classic comedy, right? In classic tragedy, at the end, everyone dies. Think Hamlet, Macbeth, right? And in classic comedy, it always ends with a wedding. I don't mean Comedy Central. I mean, like, Shakespeare, okay? Always ends with a wedding. Sometimes it ends in three, Midsummer Night's Dream or Twelfth Night. But comedy always ends in a wedding. And our story, too, the story of God in Scripture ends with a wedding, Jesus' ministry on earth begins at a wedding, a small, rural one. We don't know the bride's name or the groom's name. But the wedding that ends this part of the story is still to come. And we do know the groom's name, and it is Jesus. And we also know the bride's name. It's the church. It's us. And we have a picture of this wedding in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with white linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the true words of God. Do not miss the signs pointing to the wedding, my friends. Jesus, the groom, is standing among us. He's active in the world. Let us hear his music, join his song, drink his wine, participate in his story, and believe in 
into him because we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Amen. I'd like to invite the band up, but I'd also like to invite us to respond in prayer. As we close today, we're going to have a time of confession. It's Lent. It's a good time to practice this, this practice of confession as a group. Con confession is a group thing. We practice confession because we're all sinners and we're all in need of God's grace. We don't confess to feel guilty or to wallow in shame, but to acknowledge God and our need for him, our need for the spirit to convict us of sin and for Jesus' atoning work that is the path back to God. So I invite you to stand and pray with me. And in the middle, there will be a brief time of silence, the band you can start playing then, in which we can name personal sins of distraction to the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess all the times we've lived with our heads down, not noticing your work in the world. We confess our distractions, how we've allowed your good gifts to pull us away from your purposes. continue in prayer. This season, empower us by your spirit to see your glory, your work and power in the world, your care for us through your constant presence, and our invitation to participate in your purposes. We pray in the name of Jesus, who turned water into wine. Amen.